spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 166th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory. Bullshit, my name is Cody and my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, not doing too bad. Just, uh, you know, another week of being an adult. I guess it never really changes, does it? No, definitely not. Yeah, it's, uh, I know everyone loves it when we talk about weather. It's not <laughs> weather related. It has actually rained the past three weeks. It's rained about nine days and it's woken up the mosquitoes. Ooh. And uh, I had a ferocious fight against uh, mosquito infestation in my home. So I've been battling that the past three days, which, you know, not the best. Reminds me of home, reminds me of Minnesota, which is not uh, ideal at all. You know, some of my coworkers complain about um, getting bit up by mosquitoes and how much they don't like it and this and that. And I'm like, guys, there's one really easy way to avoid not getting bit by mosquitoes, minus your case here, Phil. Don't go outside near a body of water and uh, during the summer and you probably won't get bit, but apparently they, they don't like that advice. Yeah, I think the problem is there may have been some mosquito eggs laid ah. kind of in like the grout of behind my toilet is what I'm thinking because they were all swarming around kind of like the sink area and my like around my toilet. So I think because I like... I leave my, my windows closed. My doors are sealed up really well, actually. So I'm pretty sure that they were already inside my home. So I think I might have gotten them all. But, yeah, before I moved in, there may have been uh, the eggs being laid there. So not good, though. <laughs> the I had, God, what was it? Um, three, like, horse flies in my house. I knew, noticed the cat was kind of, like, staring blankly at the wall, which usually means there's a bug of some sort. And there was three goddamn horse flies, and I don't know where the fuck they came from, but they have all been laid to rest and destroyed. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. They're not the kind that are so big that the swatter doesn't kill them. No, I think <laughs> I think they were like adolescent. They were like teenager ones, not quite full size. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So uh, what I wanted to talk about here, and I, I got to say, guys, no hate mail, please. Don't. Don't be messaging us negative shit on Instagram or anything like that. But I had never watched any of the Godfather movies, okay? So I knew, as someone who enjoys films, I need to... I have to watch this shit because everyone says it's the greatest ever, right? So I bought the little thing with all three of them. And last weekend, I watched uh, the first one and the second one. I have yet to watch the third one yet. Uh, pretty good movies. You know what? I can't say for a three hour movie, you usually, here's how, here's my meter. If a movie's three hours long, but it doesn't necessarily feel like three hours, it'd say it's a pretty good movie, much like the, uh, the Lord of the Rings and such. Right. So, yeah. um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed them and I can see why people have said I've been missing out. Um, 
I'm guessing you've already seen these. I've seen the first two. Uh, the second one I did not like as much as the first one, just because it seemed like the dude was hanging out. I realize it's part of the story. The dude was hanging out in Italy, I believe, is the second one. Correct? Um, No. The second it's one... It's been it, a while since I've seen him. In the first one, he goes to Italy for a little while. The second one's like a retelling of post-Godfather 1 and then um, basically when Marlon Brando's character was a little kid coming up. So it's like two stories they're telling. Okay, yeah, I remember. It's been, honestly, it has been well over a decade since I've seen them. So I just remember that I didn't like the part where he was, you know, the kind of like the story like went off into, you know, direction, you know. Kind of went away from like the main story, but I did enjoy the movies. I I also have never seen the third one though, I've, which I've heard some people say is the best, and really? some people say is the worst. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure what to think about. A <laughs> little bit of contention there. I I don't know. Probably in the next few weeks, I'll I'll give her a watch. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's there's like a few. Do you have this where there's like a few movies where you're like. I need to watch these because, you know, they're kind of classics, but you haven't gotten around to watching them yet. Uh, there's, there, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really a huge classic movie, like, fan. Um, maybe the, the like, the, the classic movies that I really like are the ones that I watched as a kid. The problem is if I rewatch them as an adult, it's, I find that I don't like them as much. Uh, the Bill and Ted movies. Yeah. I really, I, I rewatched those before that new third <laughs> movie came out. I found out how not great those movies actually are. So Yeah. Yeah. They, I don't know. They're like stupid kind of, but you kind of still laugh. Yeah. They, uh, they're, they're still decent movies. They, they hold up not so, you know, they hold up okay, pretty much. There's there's like a few 80s movies, I think, that I've wanted to watch that I haven't... Um, like, like this is totally not my type of movie, but I've never watched Pretty in Pink. You know, obviously, that's like supposed to be a great movie. I, have you seen it? Yeah, I have seen it. It's been years since I've seen it, but a lot of those Brat Pack movies were really good. Everyone... A lot of people from our generation and older really liked them. Uh, probably one of my favorite ones was Breakfast Club. But. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it tackled an issue that is obviously a much bigger issue in today's day and age, where a kid bringing a gun to school. Um, spo- oh. spoiler alert for those who haven't watched Breakfast Breakfast Club, but uh, the kid bringing a school a gun to school wasn't as big of a deal in said movie as it would have been right now. <laughs> yeah, he basically got like detention on Saturday or what would be considered a terrorist act today. So Yeah, it it's yeah, you could you can't do that. Definitely. No. But yeah, uh, it's still a great movie, still holds up. All right. Uh speaking of movies, um, are you ready to get into this week's episode? Yeah, let's get it. All right. Actually this is a perfect transition there. On this week's episode, we are going to be delving into a real-life murder case that was eventually turned into a, in my opinion, really bad movie a few years ago. Now, in said movie, one man killed another man, but we're led to believe it's not his fault. The ultimate culprit is, in fact, that son of a bitch, Satan. Now, it always made me wonder... What exactly is this real story? 
did paranormal forces have a hand in this murder or was it simply a man lying and it's nothing more than cold-blooded murder? Now, the movie I'm referring to here, Phil, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I would not recommend it. It's The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. Okay, I have seen a few of The Conjurings. I'm not sure if I had seen that one. They all kind of blend together a bit. So. It's uh, Okay, I'm a big fan of Conjuring 1 especially. 2, I didn't mind. 3, I, I wanted to turn it off so bad. Especially when the line came on where it's like, um, something, something, we need to start putting the devil on trial. Whew, it, it made me cringe so bad. I yeah. swear to God, it's, uh, it's just, even the guy, the actor in it, you could tell he's like, I don't want to say this line, but I have to. <laughs> Basically, it's just like Batman and Robin. Yeah. That movie when George Clooney, like half of his lines in that movie, he's just phoning it in. <laughs> Think of the paycheck, George. Think of the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so basically, we're gonna we're gonna get like really heavy into this, but just keep in mind, guys, that basically that movie is a real story, but the movie's obviously adds a lot of horseshit in it. And as we're gonna find out later, there's a few other individuals who kind of add their own bullshit to it. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what segments of this case are actually real and which ones Phil and I can kind of decipher is the truth and bullshit. This is where the uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of small town murder comes in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, now our story all begins in the summer of 1980 in the small town of Brookfield, Connecticut. In said town reside an, at the time, 18-year-old man by the name of Arn Cheyenne Johnson, real name and middle name, uh, an unimposing young man who apparently was known as nothing more than a respectable, law-abiding man up till this point. Now, the house in question we're going to be kind of talking about, kind of that's known as the devil made me do it house, still exists to this day that you can go visit if you want. Um, But I'm guessing it's one of those scenarios where this happened, somebody else bought it in current day, and they just want to be left alone. Oh, yeah. Uh, It seems like there's either two ways for those to go. Basically, someone buys it and walls it off, you know, wants no one to come in. They probably got it out for a great deal because no one in town is going to buy it. Or some creepers from out of town came in and bought it, and they turned it into a museum. Yeah, basically, well, like all the paraphernalia and everything on the walls, and like well, I can say this for certain that um, basically, I was looking through like the town's website, and you'd assume this might be like an attraction there, like this happened, yada yada yada. But there's no mention of it, so I don't think the whole town's tourism's relying on this. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. because they don't even acknowledge that it happened. Well, there was that town that we talked about, uh, the hottest town in America. I believe it was in Kansas. Yeah. And they really, they really fucking dug in deep and fucking went full bore with all those stories. So basically their whole economy runs on it pretty much. Now. <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the case here. They just, from what I could find, basic traveling horseshit, you know, 
festivals, museums, yada yada yada. Now yeah. all of, all all of the uh, all the bullshit that no one really wants to go to, but there's nothing else to do. Yeah, all of the our small piece of shit town has talent show and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, what all kicked off the events to come was actually an 11 year old boy. Now, Arn was engaged at the time to a young woman by the name of Debbie Glatzel. It was actually her younger brother, David Glatzel, who's having uh, a few issues in the beginning here. According to both Debbie and Arn, David started to be tormented by an evil spirit. After the trio started to work on cleaning up a rental property that Arn and Debbie were going to rent together that was located actually outside of Brookfield proper. Now, I this is kind of, I mean, I shouldn't say it's weird. It's a little weird maybe for the 80s. Was Arn at the time, I think it was like 18, maybe going on 19, and Debbie was 26 or 27. So, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> and here's what else I think is funny. We're going to kind of get into how religious her family is, but... I think it's strange that there's no issue with a religious family allowing their unmarried daughter to move in with a boy, or is that not always the case? Well, I don't know. I mean, normally in those situations, it usually just has to do with, like, maturity. Like, in a lot of the like, true crime shows, like Small Town Murder, they'll always talk about, like, it's like a 27-year-old dude dating a 16- or a 17-year-old girl. And usually it's because that dude's just super immature. He's as mature as probably like a normal 17-year-old boy is, you know? Yeah. Like, or what, what a 17-year-old boy should be. So maybe it's the opposite. Maybe her, like, religious upbringing, maybe she's a little, like, Im more immature, possibly. It could be. I don't know. It's just, it's weird because, so basically there's a whole bunch of different sources of information for this and i'm kind of trying to weed through the bullshit to try to figure out what's going on here none of the let's say internet research says her exact age but the documentary i watched said she was 26 at the time and a, okay. and uh internet source said arn was 18 going on 19 during the trial so uh yeah it's quite an age gap you know obviously it's not a big deal they're both legal but uh, for the 80s in a small community with a religious family, it seems a little weird. Yeah, the thing that I find weird is that they had to go clean up. A, I, when you said that they were cleaning up a rental property, I thought that they were going to be renting it out to other people. No. But I don't, it's weird that they were renting it themselves and having to go clean it up. Yeah, I mean, I should say, in, in the documentary, the cleaning up wasn't like... They're tearing down a hoarder's house. It's like it's the shit's okay. all dusty. The windows need to be cleaned, probably swept and all of that shit. Like that kind of you're like nobody's lived there in a while dirty. Gotcha. Okay. Probably got a deal on it and shit. Right. So okay. so jumping back in here now, the three of them are on the property kind of cleaning it up. And David apparently started to see an old man on the property whenever David would kind of come visit him or kind of help him clean out. The activity would escalate into the old man getting a little more aggressive. He would begin to push David, and the, every time he would kind of show up, he was kind of becoming more of a terrifying shape of an entity. 
Um, the old man would adventure eventually inform David that he was actually going to harm his family if they were to dare move into this rental property. So again, only David's the only one who physically sees this old man. David's slightly older brother did experience a closing of the door in this property, but never experienced anything else. This is all directed at David and David only. So I think that's kind of interesting. Now he, you know, he's 11 years old. He's seeing this old man in this house. The old man's pushing him, you know, kind of the basic haunting things, I guess. <laughs> At first, I thought you were going to go in a weird direction with it. Hey like there, what? young man. You want some Papa's sticks? <laughs> <laughs> what's, that, what's that guy's name from? Um... Oh, I don't remember. It's been, it's been so long since I watched Family Guy. But Herbert the Pervert. popsicles inside. Yeah, yeah, for Herbert. some for some reason, this old man goes kept asking David to grab the change out of his pocket. I don't know <laughs> what the hell that was about, but uh, but yeah, a creepy little dog that drags its legs around. <laughs> yeah, it is it is really creepy that uh, he's actually seeing an apparition of this old man, and the old man's telling him not to move into the house to get the fuck out of there. So. Yeah, yeah, da- he da- the old man's telling David to tell his sister in. Arn, do not move in this house, so they're going to get fucked up. So, um, apparently, according to the documentary, the activity started basically right when they moved into. Like, it was like, right, you know, they moved in there. First day, David was helping him clean, and the old man just appeared in front of him. So, it was, okay. it was really quick. Yeah, it's, normally it's kind of a slow burn. When you, like, hear about people who move into a haunted house... You know, little things start, maybe the baby starts talking to something, you know, it's like one of those deals. And then it kind of like gradually progresses as you, you know, start interacting yeah. with it. This yeah. is just like fire, like right away, you know, yeah. just fucking from the shoot, they are dealing with this, this entity, at least David is. Yeah. And it, uh, as we'll find out, it just, according to them, just continuously gets worse and worse. So when David started telling, you know, Arn and Debbie about this, um, they their explanation at first is like, look, David's 11 years old. He probably doesn't want to help him clean. So he's making up all this shit so he doesn't have to keep coming back to the house. Right now, uh, Arn, Debbie and some of the other family members, as I mentioned, they didn't really have any paranormal experiences themselves. The only thing they really talked about is maybe some weird creaking from the attic, but it's an old house. You know, that could happen. As time progressed, the apparition of the old man seemed to leave this rental property and would actually follow David back to the Glatzel's house itself because David claimed that now that the old man's at his house, it started to morph into a demonic beast who spoke in Latin and was threatening that he's going to steal your soul if he sees you or he's going to steal his soul next time he sees him, stuff like that, you know. Go ahead. I imagine the old man following him home in a broken down El Camino. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into a one of the, like those old man boats, like the big Cadillacs from like the 80s, the Pentmobiles. <laughs> you think that's what this big ghost drove over <laughs> to torment him in? Oh, yeah. A broken down Pentmobile. Definitely. <laughs> so the um, the spirit morphing into like a demonic beast, I think, is kind of interesting because that seems, again, to be like something that happens sometimes. Um, we have a 
family member who is actually quoted later on kind of describing what David said this entity morphed or morphed into, I guess. He said, quote, a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointy ears, horns and hooves. So very satiro. Yeah. Dear God, I knew it. <laughs> he was doing that thing where he's pointing at you with his, uh, without his finger. He's like curling his finger and pointing at you. I knew it was Barry Satiro. Um, again, maybe this will kind of lead to an explanation for what David's seeing here. Apparently, David started to be tormented by night tears, which, as we know, kind of correlates with um, sleep paralysis. Maybe that's a thing. Uh, David's personality started to change. And they claim he began to wake up with like scratches and bruises all over his body. Kind of, I remember we covered or you covered the Sally house. Remember that that dude was getting scratched. He had bruises in the morning, kind of that type of thing. Yeah. And also, well, like a lot of the changes in personality, night terrors, all of that. Um, I don't remember what kind of like mental illness it is that happens like Puberty brings it on. Yeah. Type deal. But if he's 11 going on like 12, that's usually kind of when it starts for like some of those mental illnesses too. Like in a couple of years, they're going to actually start having real medicine, but it was still the uh, tie him down and zap him and see what happens stages of medicine. So you were on a, you were at the exit of that, but still it was happening back then. Well, uh, you can about guess what type of, medicine this family is about to <laughs> who their the number dozen. one doctor who their number one doctor is going to be in this situation um now oh, definitely now as i mentioned the glatzel's pretty religious family and it's funny because i'm watching this documentary and the mom's on there and she's just like so torn up because david you know he's experiencing all this personality changing apparently david started demanding that all the religious relics in the house had to be taken off of the walls or like taken off the shelves and thrown away. It was very evil for Mrs. Mother Glatzel there. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> I knew it always seems like the, it hits the big, like religious families. It always kind of like attacks the religion, you know, yeah. kind of like going yeah. against the norm. So it is kind of funny to think of. I haven't seen the documentary, obviously, but you kind of, way you mentioned it, like yeah. the old woman kind of like, being told to get rid of all of her crosses like, and shit. She's like, they told me to take the crucifix off the wall. There's something wrong with my little baby David. <laughs> like, okay, man. Like, all right. <laughs> but yeah, you are right. A lot of these situations, like, it, it seems like the kid who's possessed or whatever starts attacking uh, religious relics. The family is overly religious, so he probably is very familiar with all this ideology and stuff that's all over the home, you know, and kind of knows yeah. what to attack to upset people and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way that I said it was like when it happens to a religious family, it, I don't ever really hear about like a possession happening to a family where like the mom and the dad are both scientists and you know, <laughs> the kids all have one fifteen IQs, right. twenty IQs. You don't really hear it happening to them all that often. I so. mean, how do you explain Tom Cruise? That's true. <laughs> yeah, but he's so short. True. That is true. I he's what it is. He's <laughs> I don't know. He's possessed by something. Maybe it's LRH. I don't know. But uh getting back here. Now, as I mentioned, 
Glatzel's extremely religious family, they're not the type to seek out psychiatric help. So instead they decide, hey, we're going to call up the old wizards across the street here, the Catholic church. They're going to say, we need a little Catholic magic. A Catholic priest would come out over to the Glatzel's house. He would do a blessing. He gave him holy water. He apparently had some sort of a religious um, Christian necklace of some sort he gave David to kind of help keep the beast at bay. And allegedly for a while, it seemed to help, calmed all the activity in the home. David felt better. But then a flip switched here. And this is according to the family on the documentary. David had a little T-Rex toy, right? It stood up and it started speaking to him. And that little T-Rex toy told him, beware. So, um, and then they knew, the Glatzels knew, the entity, the demon, whatever, it's back. It's back with a vengeance. The blessing kept it down for a little bit, but they're going to need some more help than just the priest coming over to bless, bless them. So... What? The uh, the placebo wore off is what <laughs> I'm thinking, definitely. Also, when you said the T-Rex stood up and spoke to him, I imagine the T-Rex from the Toy Story movie. Definitely. Well, in your... <laughs> can you imagine that little stupid dinosaur just telling, I'm going to eat your fucking soul, David? <laughs> no, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's really strange. I've never heard of anything like that, but they're just openly saying... David's little T-Rex stood up and told him to beware, and then all hell kind of broke loose. And did any of the adults see this, or was it just David? Uh, It's just David. Okay, yeah. So definitely, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I love the paranormal, I love all that stuff, but just the way I'm feeling, it's kind of like, ooh, this is just affecting David really right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe it affects the other ones in the future, but... Oh, we're really gonna, at this point, I would be like, well, I think something might be real wrong with the kid. Well, you we're going to we're going to find out how it affects somebody else, Phil. That's that's okay. the uh, that's the title of this episode. But we we got a little bit more to tread through here. So, like I said, Glatzels didn't know where to turn. The blessing didn't help. They called the church up, asked for their advice. Well, allegedly, the priests told them they should contact this little couple who's kind of hot in the paranormal world at the moment by the name of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, uh, the, they call them up, the demonologist duo. You know, they're, they love the exorcisms, and they live pretty close by, so they popped over to help. Now, in... I've actually, I believe I've heard of these two. Are they, like, what other famous cases are they in, or... Amityville. Amityville, oh, okay, gotcha. That's yep. probably their biggest one. They have Amityville, uh, the Perrin family, which is kind of the story of the first conjuring. Um, what's the other one? One I covered on uh, Bumblebutt a long time ago with a little girl who kind of had like poltergeist activity. Okay, yeah. Were these the two who were portrayed in the Conjuring movie? Yeah, yeah. With the doll. Yep. Okay, so they're yep. the ones who owned the paranormal gift uh, shop, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So. Uh, at this time, they're really big in the world. They're kind of, um, you know, they had, I believe they already had the Amityville thing happen. They had the, I wish I could remember the name of the little girl, Marcia something another, kind of a poltergeist thing, um, in the Perrin family. So they're really big in the world, in the 
celebrities, kind of, um, for what they do anyway, because obviously Amityville's extremely popular story. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously back then they didn't have internet, they didn't have all that. So, I mean, as popular as you could get in kind of that little, like the little niche of, you know, paranormal and all of that back then. But I mean, think about how famous they would have been right now. Yeah. In my mind, like if Ed and Lauren Warren or Ed and Lorraine Warren would have been around now doing that stuff. That would have been fucking huge with Here, social media and everything. Here's my opinion on Ed and Lorraine and anybody. I know a lot of people love them. I think they're kind of, I don't want to say hucksters, but they definitely were kind of like knew how to manipulate things to make money off of it. So yep. my belief is, is their first, the in the beginning, they definitely went to some places that had paranormal shit, especially that um, Marcia girl's house, which was kind of like their first big case. And then I think they learned how to kind of manipulate situations to keep the, keep the thing going. And I think that might be the case here, but we'll kind of reserve judgment for the end. Um, is that kind of how you feel about them? A little bit. Yeah. They weren't hacks, but maybe hucksters kind of like yeah. you said. Yeah. Um, not total charlatans. No, 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 no. Um, but the problem, too, is when you do that for a living, you have to make a living. So, yeah, it's it, the same with the priest, honestly. You know, you do that shit for a living, you know. And if somebody comes in and says their kid's possessed by the devil, you said last week the devil existed. So you got to go along with it, you know. I mean, people people will buy books, movies, TV shows, as is obvious with the Conjuring movie. Like, people will eat this shit up. And I think them two knew how to how to sell it. Um, yeah, especially back then when books made money. <laughs> exactly. Now, this is kind of something that made me chuckle a little bit because the Warrens are very, very pro-Catholic, mostly. Um, they're very pro-Jesus, God, all that sort of religious belief as far as, like, battling supernatural things. So, in the documentary... The documentary was called The Devil Made Me Do It. It's a call, it's a shock uh, shock doc. You can watch on like um, uh, D- uh, Discovery Plus. It was on there. That's okay. where I watch it at. I wouldn't recommend paying for it just to watch it, but it, it was interesting if you have it. Now, according to the Warrens, when they first met David, they had him checked out by an actual doctor before they even attempted to investigate the paranormal part of it. But I think this is bullshit because, again, all the other sources minus the documentary made no mention of this. Basically just went right into the, your son's possessed. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to mention a little bit. You do, you don't really ever see, like, atheists, you know, ghost hunters. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good idea with, like, uh, UFO like people who want to believe in UFOs to seek them out to be skeptical also and to kind of like try to, you know, try to weigh the evidence. But they're always going to be leaning towards, you know, the paranormal. That's kind of like these two. I doubt that they, you know, didn't have the doctor in their pocket before that, that sort of situation, <laughs> if they even had him see a doctor at all. Well, I think I'm kind of, obviously we'll never really know for sure, but... I think I'm so far I'm kind of along with uh, or with you where I think David has some 
burgeoning mental illness that's kind of affecting him. So if they did, oh, in definitely. fact, take him to a doctor, I would assume said doctor would kind of have put a stop to it before we get to the part we're about to get to. Can't say, like I, you said, mental health wasn't great back then, but I think they could at least tell delusions from reality, right? You would have at least recommended a specialist, yeah. basically. At that, I mean, maybe, like, nowadays, the doctor probably could have diagnosed him themselves. Oh, for sure. Uh, or gotten, you know, in touch with, like, psychologist, you know, those kind of people, trying to figure out. Because nowadays, they have entire volumes on mental health and, you know, what uh, the signs and symptoms are for all these different sort of, you know, illnesses. Back then, those books were basically like pamphlets. Like, open it up, page one. Uh, they're crazy. That's it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, or like it was, they were still talking about hysteria pretty much yeah. at that time. Yeah. Too, so. Yeah, that was a big thing. And, and pretty much everything was either stress, anxiety, or you were schizophrenic. There wasn't any like <laughs> middle ground. Yeah. Uh, it was their catch-all. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Now, Again, Lorraine, let's just pretend, say they took him to the doctor. That wasn't helping. Okay, back when they saw David again, Lorraine now, she has claimed to be a clairvoyant who can see people's energy and all that stuff. Now, she claimed that when she laid eyes on David a few times, she kind of witnessed this black mist that was standing next to him, which to her was signs that that there was a malevolent spirit that was kind of attached to him. So again... Paranormal-wise, that is something that I guess is pretty normal-ish. I've heard that a million times. The problem that I have with that is, uh, besides the fact that, (laughs) you know, it's easy to say that you have magic powers and you see things that other people don't. Did she hear about, like, did she hear anything about, like, David's story? About, like, the fact that he was the one being haunted before she came to the scene? Oh, I'm sure she did. Yeah, exactly. She knew exactly who to say had the black mist around them. Right, you know? right. So, I mean, David, I mean, from the way they describe how David was acting, it'd be pretty obvious who was <laughs> the one having yeah. a tough time here. So the family would kind of um, give a little quote here about what kind of his, what he, David was doing after the warrants kind of came around, his his possession moments kind of intensified. They basically said this quote here. He would kick bite, spit, swear, terrible words. He experienced strangling attempts by invisible hands, which he tried to pull from his neck, and powerful forces would flop him rapidly head to toe like a rag doll. Now, David also apparently started to recite Bible passages and would speak in a weird voice. So with all this evidence in front of them, uh, the Warrens, would kind of give their prognosis here about what was going on with David. And that was David was in in fact possessed by a demonic spirit. The home itself, the Glatzel home was infested by Satan and 42 of his demonic helpers. So Uh, their recommended treatment was some good old fashioned exorcisms. That is a full fucking house. Satan and 42 of his demonic yeah. helpers. You're in some good company there. Like, the big man himself is in your home. <laughs> yeah. The lazy uh, bum be proud. Lazy bum wasn't even fucking paying rent or anything. 
didn't pay him rent or even help him clean out the old newspapers and fucking cat shit when they cleaned the place <laughs> out after the hoarders died. It'd be like, Satan, can you at least clean the litter box in the morning for me? Come on, dude. If you're going to be living here. Um, now, actually, we have a little special treat. So I kind of want to I have a little audio. We ha- They have audio of the recording. Basically, some basically the family talking to David when he was in his weird demony growly voice shit right now um the thing is the documentary stated they wanted exorcisms right but if you want exorcism through the catholic church you have to go through all these hoops you have to get permission from the vatican and all of that so apparently that's cardinal needs to suck your dick Yeah, yeah basically basically um so that's why the warrens told him to record David, so they could kind of give it to these higher up warlocks at the Catholic Church so they could approve the exorcism. Now, are you ready to kind of hear what David sounds like? It's about a minute and a half long. It's kind of hard to hear because it's shitty recording, but you can kind of get the gist of what's going on. Yes, ready. Let's go. David, I'm In the name of Jesus, Jesus repels you. Leave this child alone. All right, what do you what do you think of that, Phil? Yeah, I, at first I thought it was the uh, just the son who wanted attention from all of this, but uh, the mom really seems to be playing <laughs> along. She's, she's kind of she's a fucking bitch. all about it. This might be the best thing that's ever happened to her. <laughs> Well, see, Arn, you know, it might not seem like Arn's the main character of this story, but that's him who's like hang, kind of saying, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, get out of this boy, get out of this boy. So, okay. Uh, that's they kind were of trying their own little uh, backwoods redneck. Uh, basically. Uh, basically. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, the mom's a little aggressive. She's like, get out of my oh, son. Yeah. Get out of my son. Yeah, she definitely sees herself as a fucking uh, a weapon of God, just from the sounds <laughs> of that little clip there. I don't know. She might have been putting it on just for the the fact that the radio, the recorder was on. So you know, the quality of that reminds me of like if you listen to the Jim Jones tape. Like, um, have you ever heard any of that? Yes, when he recorded himself doing his sermons. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what it reminds me. Of. Like the audio quality is just that bad. But uh, but anyway, so. Basically, from this point, um, you know, they had been waiting weeks and weeks to kind of get a confirmation from the Vatican 
but David was getting worse and worse. So the Warrens kind of talked with the local priest and wanted to find out if they could perform kind of some quote-unquote lesser exorcisms, which is apparently exorcisms that would be used in the very beginning of the exorcism, not the full exorcism. So it's kind of okay for just the local priest to do them. Now, like I said, they would do three of them. Apparently, the first one, the mom stopped because David was writhing in torment. But because of that, it apparently made the entity even more mad because they didn't finish the exorcism. So later on, they would do the last two. Now, to get an idea of what David was like during these exorcisms, um, apparently, David would begin to levitate, okay? Pretty common in, I guess, exorcisms. He would speak blasphemous words. I'm not really sure what that means. And also, David just straight up quit breathing at some points. Nobody had any idea um, why, but apparently he just stopped breathing, which I think is... You should probably call an ambulance or something at that point, but uh, but yeah, I with I feel like exorcisms. This is kind of the two things: levitation, speaking blasphemous. Yeah, this uh, sounds like the sort of thing you don't want to get the cops involved with. Though, <laughs> <So, laughs> just <laughs> we, we all got... of a sudden they're wondering why why this kid has fucking uh, you know looks like he's been held down. Looks like he's gotten the shit beaten out of him. They're like, well, there's uh, there's a devil inside of him. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll be taking him away now. Off- uh... I bet this is Officer Chris Angel, rookie on the police force, spotted David levitating. He's like, I wonder if I can make a Vegas Vegas State show out of levitating. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be really huge for about three years, yeah. and then no one's ever going to hear from me ever again. I'm going to scare random people on the street. Um, so the, one of the biggest things, and this is kind of a big linchpin to the events about that are about to happen is apparently David in, during one of the exorcism specifically said that somebody in the family, moreover, Arne Cheyenne Johnson was going to be committing a murder in the future. Allegedly, David predicted what is about to happen in the future? I don't know. This is what they all say. Again, we're taking their word on it. So I don't know. But uh, but eventually, kind of during the last exorcism or after the exorcisms were over, they kind of quelled it for a little bit, but they weren't exactly getting rid of it. And our Arn Cheyenne Johnson apparently was so tired of the tormenting of the little kid by the demon. He just straight out said, Spirit. Take me on, leave my little buddy alone, which is going to be a very fateful line that he said there. So he's basically challenging the demon to come get him. <laughs> very, very white trash. <laughs> I'll take you on. Come on. <laughs> Look, I, I fought bears all the time. <laughs> as my going to bed show, I watched the best of Raw, right? Now, I could totally see Arn on in the middle of the ring with the mic being... Take me on. Leave my little buddy alone. <laughs> Just. <laughs> <laughs> you know which one was honestly on last night? It was fucking strange. I forgot it even happened. It was Stone Cold versus Goldust. And Goldust okay. came out with a diaper and like the prototypical the baby. baby. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck oh. is this? That's a classic episode, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that was. Uh... <laughs> 
That was actually a really big one for Gold Dust too. It was more. It was bigger for Gold Dust than it was for Stone Cold. Is that kind of like he threw really put the 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 Gold Dust like psychotic character forward? Yeah, it, you know, and put him he, over. Do you remember the part where he threw him in the porta potty and everything? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking ridiculous. But um, so yeah, Phil Paranormal, you're not supposed to challenge spirits, right? No. And Arn kind of committed the cardinal sin, apparently. Now, this next part, again, is kind of where we get two separate stories, okay? Now, in the documentary, they claim that Arn basically challenged the demon. He told him, hey, come for me, leave the little kid alone. That's how it goes in the movie. Now, but in certain sources on the internet, they claim that Arn actually went back to a rent, the rental property where apparently the, this old man spirit was not even at anymore. And Arn looked down a mysterious well that was in the backyard. And in the reflection of the water in the well, he saw the demon's face. And once he made eye contact with said demon, that is the point when he apparently became immediately possessed. So... Uh. They've got kind of two little stories going on here, but in both of them, allegedly the Warrens warned Arn to not do either of these things. So he's just like Brett Favre. Once he stares <laughs> you down, you're done for. Yeah, and apparently Arn just like Brett Favre sent him penis pics um, <laughs> as well. So because because they didn't have cell phones, he had to actually take Polaroids of his penis, throw them down the well, and then the... That's old-timey Brett Favre right there. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was going to say, when you said that he was speaking blasphemous words, was it that Joe Montana was not the greatest quarterback of all time? <laughs> Those are the blasphemous words. He said, back put in, the in Steve Young. Put in Steve Young. No, I don't Montana's know. over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, I think this was like uh, 1980. I think Montana was just on his way to win the first his first Super Bowl, I believe, right? Yeah, he was coming up there uh, in the next couple years, I believe. They went on their their run. Yeah, it's uh, but I I don't know. Maybe that's what what he did say. But either way, let's let's kind of get back to Arn now, because now Arn is apparently possessed or like slowly becoming possessed. Okay, Arn claims that in the beginning it was pretty mild, but one event that stuck out to him it was he was just driving his car along. And apparently this entity just took control of his car, crashed it right into a fucking tree. But Arn was not hurt from this. <laughs> Had nothing to do with the fucking half suitcase he put away. <laughs> no. Beforehand. No, 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 no. Okay. I, I think the demon might have been in that Jack Daniels bottle, but we're, we can't be certain there. Possibly. Maybe that yeah. was the well he looked down and saw the demon who was in the bottom of his Jack Daniels bottle. The cops pull him. I can just imagine the cops pulling him out of the car. It was, uh, it was the demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's I'm just the... kidding. Drunk driving wasn't illegal back then. No, it no, it definitely wasn't illegal. And the drinking age was 18, I believe, still in 1980. Yes. So, <sighs> we'll continue on here. Like I said, uh, allegedly, let's say allegedly, David still was kind of suffering, but most of it was going over to Arn that's kind of making a slow transition. Now, Arn and Debbie were living at the time. Apparently they moved out of the rental and now they're moving 
They moved back in with him. They all are living in the Glatzels house, okay? But they decided they were going to try to get their own place again. So they rented an apartment this time and not a rental property. And kind of the key thing here is that they moved close to where Debbie worked, which was for a dog kennel that was ran by a man named Alan Bono, okay? He, he apparently, his town or his little house and the dog kennel is connected together, which I have to imagine stinks pretty bad. What do you think? Oh, oh yeah. That's uh, kind of a kind of a normal thing back then having well, I mean obviously there's undertakers who live where they worked. But yeah. there was a lot of a lot of women who opened up um like hair salons outside of their homes. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, kind of like ran little businesses out of the garage situations, kind of like a little cottage but, industry. But think um, about um having dogs barking on I I don't I don't think I could do it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. If you, you would definitely want to, if you were, you know, living, living there, you would want your, you know, you would want to have a job during the day if you weren't the one grooming the dogs. <laughs> I also, I was going to say, if you are Arn at this point, what a fella. He is just fucking sticking around through all this craziness. I'd be out the fucking door. Can I, like, can, can I, I be gone? Can I tell you something? Oh, I and gotta, I, sorry, babe. I got to go work on a fucking oil rig. <laughs> get out of here. Let me tell you something, and I, I hope I'm not sounding too misogynistic here, but okay. in the pictures from this time, Debbie's pretty fucking hot. Okay. So That's Arn, gotcha. I think Arn, you know, she's a, by all accounts, Debbie's a sweet girl, you know, not really a problem starter or anything. She's just a very pretty young girl, probably, you know, all you could ask for if you're 18 year old Arn, and I'm gonna assume Arn, Arn's quite religious as well, so all of this stuff is just par for the course for him. Oh, well, I was just thinking if it was me, Arn probably is getting into it, you know, it's probably his bag too. Um, also, like you said, you will put up a lot of bullshit for a nine, <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, if she yeah. was. <laughs> She was, uh, she was not quite all that. I bet he'd be out the door, possibly. But, you know, actually, the 80s, you know, just from watching those movies, chicks look pretty weird back then. They like to <laughs> wear a lot of weird shit, so. Let me, let me say this. Men and women, there's a lot of people I know I'm surprised with the level of bullshit they put up with from their partner, so. I don't know. I guess uh, sometimes they'll just do it regardless if they're whatever you know if you're in love sometimes you'll just put up with some wild shit oh true just like if the window on your car doesn't roll down you're just so used yeah. to it you don't even notice it anymore nah. yeah it's fucked up but nah whatever nah, fuck I'm it. Living it. all right now we're gonna jump ahead to february 16th 1981 this is probably seven eight months since the beginning of this whole this whole saga and this is kind of the fateful night here now, at the time, Arn Johnson was working as a, quote, tree surgeon for Wright Tree Service. But on this particular day, he had called in sick. Now, have you ever heard someone been called a fucking tree surgeon before? I don't know. It kind of sounds like when you call a janitor a custodial engineer. Kind of sounds ah. like, a, like a churched up name. And it sounds like he just cut down trees for a living. They called him a tree surgeon. <laughs> I just wish he would act like a surgeon and start yelling and de uh, delicately cutting open the tree and 
and putting a toe tag on it when it's dead and, and all of that stuff. But uh God damn it, I need more <laughs> suction. As he asks no one for suction. Cause it's just him out there cutting <laughs> open a tree. I do think that there are diseases that affect certain trees. So maybe he was actually someone who kind of like, you know, heals trees or, you know, tries to do, you know, get rid of their diseases. Like the town that we grew up in, Cresco, Iowa, Main Street's name is Elm Street. I guess there used to be a bunch of elms on that street, but then some kind of like elm disease like ran through the town and killed all the elms on Elm Street. Definitely, definite possibility because... I know around here they you'll see it's more if you go up no north you'll see like signs for like don't transfer lumber because there's certain bugs that kill the trees. Oh yeah, definitely. And with all those people out on the range, you know they see a hole, they're gonna fuck it. So, <laughs> you know, they gotta watch out for that too. Somebody gotta fuck that hole, boy. All right, now <laughs> hey, no. lonely up there. A lot of dudes, not a lot of chicks. <laughs> That look like an ass on that tree there. There are. <laughs> That's a fine hump on that tree. <laughs> All right, now um, back to this here. So Arn called in sick. Allegedly, it's because he had a sore throat. Now from this point, there's a deviation in the story. Again, internet stories, newspapers, all that tell one side, and documentary says a different side. We'll go with the internet one here first. So apparently Arn had the day off. Debbie, Arn, Debbie's sister Wanda, and their nine-year-old cousin Mary all went to a popular Brookfield pub to enjoy lunch. And uh, it just so happened that Debbie's boss, Alan Bono, was there. Apparently Alan Bono and Arn Johnson then began drinking quite heavily. The girls went back to Alan's house to continue working on the dog. So they basically went out to eat. Arn and Alan stayed there, had a, you know, had a few drinks, and the girls went back because they all worked for Alan Bono's kennel. So that's kind of story one there. Story- I was going to say, it sounds weird to have a nine-year-old in a pub, but small town, especially back then, not weird at all. Well, I Just- mean, <laughs> if it's like, you know... 12 o'clock you can uh, go have dinner there you know what i mean oh yeah i suppose a pub is more of a restaurant than a bar isn't it little little both yeah so that's kind of why they were there although i'm sure mary was drinking it is connecticut um packing it in now the kind of the flip side story too that the documentary said was it was just arn and debbie who went to this pub alan was not there and Arn and Debbie were the ones drinking, and nobody else was there. So it's, I don't know why one or the other would change the story. I still have yet to figure that out, but the story one and story two, and we'll kind of keep continuing the story between story one and story two here. Okay. So story one, back with them. The three girls, they're at the Allen's house. Later in the day, Arn and Alan return, and at this point... They've been drinking <laughs> a good chunk of the day, so they're 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 you know a little inebriated, and as drunk people are wont to do sometimes, it kind of gets heated a little bit between Arn and Alan. Now, as time progressed, Alan Bono was apparently continuing to drink, and he started to get he must be an angry drunk. He's starting to get a little little angrier here. Now, 
probably because she had seen Alan Bono in the state before, Debbie attempted to get herself and uh, Arn and the two other girls, they were going to just leave the house because she didn't want to deal with drunk Alan. Now, allegedly, Alan grabbed the nine-year-old girl, Mary, and refused to let her go. So at this point, Arn, he's a little drunk too, he starts demanding that Alan let her go, which caused um, Alan and Arn to really start to argue. Things are getting really, really heated. And before you knew it, Arn allegedly, my fingers are allegedly here, his eyes turned black, he began to growl like a wild animal, he then pulled out a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Alan Bono five times. So, from let's just stop right here. Um, it's I don't want to say it sounds like a typical reason for murder, but two drunk people arguing. I don't. What do you think? Yeah, I mean that's the kind of shit you hear on fucking you know ten o'clock news is. Two drunk people, one of them pulled out a knife and stabbed the other one. You know, got in an argument and some shit went down. It seems pretty normal. I mean, I don't know. It's, I, I, I kind of know where this story is going from what you were saying before. But it kind of sounds almost like back then it might have been seen possibly as, um, you know, you could maybe get the, what do you call that? Not criminal, not uh, temporary insanity. Yeah. You could either get maybe temporary insanity or you could get possibly self-defense if he thought he was going to hurt that the little girl. Well, so at this point, allegedly, he blacked out um, okay. before he stabbed him, which I, I think in a violent crime like this is we've heard on all the true crime shows isn't necessarily uncommon. But yeah. um, Debbie's basically the only one that refutes his eyes turning black and growling like a fucking demon animal and then stabbing him. Now we'll kind of go with story two, which I, I don't know if it really makes a difference, but just to cover our bases, I'll just say, so if we go back to Arn, Debbie, they're at the pub, they're drinking. Alan calls him over. He's having a little shindig, having a little party. The couple goes over there. They're drinking with Alan. I don't know who else was there. Um, and allegedly, according to Debbie, Alan started turning the music up too loud and she was getting uncomfortable. So Arn and Debbie attempted to leave and then Alan grabbed Arn. I'm sorry. Alan grabbed Debbie saying, you're not going anywhere. And then a fight kind of ensued and Arn went demon mode and stabbed the shit out of, out of Alan there. So I don't, I don't, I don't. So does story two have the stabbing occurring at the pub? No, no, no. At his house. Still at the house. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, sorry. Gotcha. They okay. they left the pub to go to a party at Alan's house. Gotcha. Uh, but, okay. the, but the other two girls are not there, allegedly in the documentary's retelling of the story. Okay, gotcha. So I don't know if either of them are more believable. Honestly, I don't think it generally matters in the grand scope of things because they both have the same outcome where Arn is in an argument with Alan and then he, he stabs him. So I would say from what it sounds like, there's a trial in the future and had all of those witnesses been there, there would have been kind of like court evidence, court records saying who was there. So, so you, possibly 
So you think reason two might be more believable? Yeah, reason two might be more believable if none of the other people either testified or were kind of recorded as being there. Right, right. Well, kind of after the stabbing, they immediately called an ambulance. Uh, ambulance came there, took took uh, Alan to the hospital. He's not dead quite yet. But Arn just immediately took off with the knife going down the road. Um, I think he dropped the knife in the yard somewhere, I believe. But allegedly, a fucking paramedic <laughs> ended up spotting Arn hiding underneath a bridge. And then <laughs> that paramedic, no gun or cuffs or anything, he called the cops, said, hey, I found him. And then he, I don't even know if he called it citizen's arrest or whatever, but he held him <laughs> and basically told him he's under arrest. They they got him to the jail and then he was giving he was given a bail set at a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. So we'll stop here again. I think this is really <laughs> suspicious that he fled the scene and then was kind of attempting to hide under a bridge. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's fucking destroying his temporary insanity plea. Yeah, for, for the future. Um, I do kind of like it how. You know, you just got a uh, Joe Schmo fucking EMT guy, and he's the hero of the day. You know, he jumps on, he jumps on the bloody drunk, and you know, <laughs> holds him down. Hey, he's over here, boys! <laughs> I got him. You know, you know what's funny about this though is that um, the paramedic—they're interviewing him in the documentary, and you can tell he was like really proud of what he did because, oh yeah, in his defense. You had no idea if this guy, if this guy just killed somebody, um, you don't know if he's would have fucking stabbed you for approaching him and he doesn't have a gun. Oh, definitely. He definitely after this used that story to try to get laid at a bar. You can tell. Just... <laughs> he, went, he went right to that pub and he was telling all the chicks in the bar. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know that murder that just happened? I caught him. Bare hands. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, who wants to buy me a drink? <laughs> so uh with alan there they got him an ambulance they got him to the hospital he survived for about two an hour or two and then he he succumbed to his wounds and he had stabbings all over his abdomen and chest but he had one cut that basically went from his stomach all the way up to into his rib cage which i which i thought was a really brutal cut you know what i'm saying like if you think about a five inch knife you're doing regular stabbings. That's like a laceration. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he's, I wonder what kind of a stab that would be. Almost like, a, like, kind of like an uppercut stab. Yeah, you'd have to, like, stab like, and He started pull from up. his hip and stabbed up. Yeah, like stabbing and then pulling up. So, I don't know. That seemed pretty fucking visceral. Or he missed him with a downward stab, but just barely got him enough to make a long cut. Like, I you suppose know, cut if you're down the stomach too. I suppose but if yeah, you're... that's quite a that's quite a fucking uh, for a, for a little blade like that. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the knife, it looks like your prototypical knife you can buy at a sporting goods store or whatever. So I'm assuming it was sharp as shit. So, but yeah. any anyway, the cops here they have Arn in custody, and even the detectives on the documentary do not mention anything about a fucking possession or anything they basically said they think it was the two drunk guys and alan was trying to get 
frisky with Debbie, you know, she was a pretty girl or whatever. And then a fight broke out and he, he stabbed the shit out of him. So I, I think the police probably nailed it on the head there, but kind of after news got out, guess who came to the rescue? The Warrens. And they apparently Ah. called the Brookfield police to explain to them that it wasn't Arne Cheyenne Johnson's fault at all. No, 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 no. It was a fucking demon who possessed him and made him kill Alan Bono. So what do you think the police police did after they heard them call the station and tell them that? First of all, it sounds really humanitarian of them to, <laughs> to help this poor fella out, you know, in his time of need. And totally not that they were, you know, after the amount of attention that they were about to get from this uh, <laughs> this big twist that well, they formed themselves. You know damn well, the second the cops heard this, media were probably there. Maybe they spoke oh, to yeah. the media. The hawks were just all over this. Well, the thing, too, is the reporters are there and it's like, OK, we have the story. You know, fucking uh, drunk guy A hits on drunk guy B's girlfriend, so drunk guy B stabs him. Okay, yeah, yeah we've heard this story a million times. It, you know, it might make the fucking, you know, the news tonight, but that's all the legs it's going to have. Now, all of a sudden, it's demons, it's fucking murder. You know, you're almost, what is it? How how close are we to satanic panic at this point, too? Damn, it's, we're like, know, it, it's all. we're in the heat of it. We're like in the beginning yeah, of it. Yeah, so it's just heating up right now, possibly satanic panic too. That shit will get you fucking national coverage at yeah. that point. Yeah. So especially and, a real murder. Yeah, definitely. And it could be too. I I'm not gonna say this for certain. We can we can guess at the end, but maybe this was their way of helping Arn kind of beat the charges a little bit, which we'll find out he kind of does honestly. But uh, in the documentary, allegedly. The Warrens say they tried to conv- they kind of contacted a lawyer for Arn by the name of Martin Manila, <laughs> and they ca- they had to kind of convince him to defend Arn based on the he was possessed thing. And a court they had Martin on the documentary too, and allegedly he was skeptical of the possession uh, the devil possession angle, but the Warrens played him the audio like we heard. And then he became more convinced or he thought it might have been something he can work with. So Martin Manila was going to start working on his defense, which was called, which he labeled basically not guilty by virtue of possession. Never heard that before. Yeah, definitely right to start off. Martin Manella definitely sounds like an old mob lawyer who's <laughs> now in the witness protection program, changed his name to something ridiculous. And, you know, <laughs> be like, you said they're out, they're out in like Connecticut. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah. So he might be out hiding, hiding from the family. <laughs> what if they have, they find out his like granddaddy invented those yellow Manella envelopes and it's just like a giant He's portrait a of him. Yeah. <laughs> He just, they have portraits of the whole family holding these yellow envelopes. It'd be awesome. Definitely. <laughs> now, apparently Martin, he, he got fucking head over heels. He was going to push for, push for this defense as hard as he could. It wasn't a bad angle. Allegedly, Martin even traveled to England to speak to lawyers who had attempted to use this type of case before. Um, he was going to bring in, quote, 
exorcism specialists as expert witnesses from the Vatican, by the way. And he was even going to subpoena the priests who oversaw the lesser exorcisms of David. They'd be pretty good witnesses, I suppose. So oh, definitely, yeah. This is this is turning into kind of an expensive uh, little little go of it. For I don't know how much a a tree surgeon and a dog groomer can make, <laughs> but uh, he must that Martin Manila must be doing this all pro bono, or he's using that Manila envelope money for good. Well, as we know, and I'm not saying you did this, Martin, if you're listening, but sometimes lawyers will take wild cases because. You get publicity, and then you can get more clientele, right? Oh, yeah, especially if they win those cases or at least keep their client out of the chair. Definitely. Right, yeah. right. You're going to make the big bucks. I mean, in that, in that, from that angle, I don't think anybody could blame Martin because it's a good way to get more clients, honestly. Definitely, yeah. Now, on October 28th, 1981, the trial was set to begin. Martin Manella... Uh, he he would attempt to actually physically submit the plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. But Judge Robert Callahan, he said, get the hell out of here with that shit and told him he could not attempt that defense because it was, quote, and this is quoting the judge, a relative and unscientific. OK, Mr. Callahan, uh, <laughs> but which hard. I, this is what I think is interesting about how big the story eventually became because the judge ruled that none, zero of the demonic possession testimony was allowed to be in the court at all. But I would assume the jurors probably, even though they're not supposed to, I'm going to assume they heard something about this, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Uh, depends on how far out they kind of, you know, um, set up the court if they got a uh, change of location or not. But if it was in the town, definitely like in that tri-state area, kind of like where all that news is centered. You always hear about like the tri-state and how they all kind of share the same news. Yeah. You definitely would have heard about it. You know, a murder with all of this kind of like, you know, magic shit happening. Um, maybe not, in, you know, the bigger cities, they might not have heard about it because they have murders of their own. But definitely in you know, this area in Connecticut, you would have heard about it. Yeah, so this is what I think is so funny. It's like the whole movie is literally based on them using the he was possessed by a devil testimony, right? And usually you would think with a story this big, that would be allowed in some form. But apparently the judge didn't allow any of it, which is even more surprising when on November 24th, 1981, the jury took about 15 hours of deliberation, so there was a lot of hard thinking going on in there. But they found Arn, jo Arn Cheyenne Johnson guilty of first-degree manslaughter. And then the judge sentenced him to 10 to 20 years. But uh, in the end, he only served somewhere between four to five years because of good behavior, and Arn got parole. So that seems like a pretty light fucking sentence i'm guessing that the reason why they deliberated for 15 hours was they were arguing between first degree manslaughter and maybe like um a murder charge of you know second or third degree something like that i wonder what their options were what i'm kind of getting at because it definitely wasn't first degree and like it was awful 
you know, he definitely stabbed the fuck out of him. So it was, I think it was more than manslaughter, but you know, kind of one of those like heat of passion type deals, you know, it just happened. Second degree murder. Yeah. So I guess, I guess maybe because it wasn't premeditated. Um, you, you know what I mean? I guess that's a kind of a big factor when it comes to murder cases in America, because this kind of happened in the heat of the moment. Um, so it's got to be this kid's first offense. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, I'm know, sure. Obviously, his first, you know, assault with a knife. You know, it's, you know, they they would have mentioned that in his past if he had stabbed someone before, so or assaulted or threatened anyone. So I wonder if that kind of helped him with the four to five years of good behavior, like getting out. Right. Field. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I wish we knew more about Alan. Maybe he was an old drunk asshole. I don't know. Maybe he had been harassing Debbie a lot. Maybe he'd been, if the other story with the other girls is true, maybe he was inappropriate with them. I don't really know. Um, And like you said, if Arn had been, by all accounts, a law-abiding citizen and had never done, done anything bad, and if he was drunk, and then, you know, when you got two drunk people... Stuff can happen, you know. That's not an excuse for murdering somebody, obviously, but I don't know. It's it seems like too light of a sentence, but I guess it's not up to us, is it? Had he spent, if you would have cut that in half and say he spent 15 years, then got parole for a few years, then he was done. I would have said, yeah, that feels about right. Uh, four to five years is not. That's yeah, that's awful short. He would have been 20, what three? When he yeah. got out, 24-ish, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's still got a lot of life in front of him for killing a person. So. Yeah, he, he was, Arn Johnson was actively speaking on the documentary. Like, he was. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's okay. why it's, you know, it's kind of weird to look at this guy being interviewed on the show after he killed somebody. But I guess he served his time. I mean, you can't do, you know, that's how. Yeah. The law, the law works, you know, the justice system. So, um, but if it's any condolences, we have a little bit of information about after the fact. Uh, he definitely doesn't reoffend. I can tell you that much. Yeah, uh, while he was serving his time in prison, he and Debbie would actually get married. Um, Arn would even get his high school diploma while he was serving his time. After he was released, the couple would go on to have two children and. Like I said, they kind of disappeared into obscurity. We don't know anything about them. Uh, Debbie, it's kinda, go ahead. It's nice that he, oh, I was going to say, it's nice that he uh, was able to lock down Debbie like while in prison. So he <laughs> doesn't have to worry about that, I suppose. Um, but a, uh, you said he also got his, was it college or high school? High degree? school. He must have dropped high out and degree. just not tried to finish. Uh, Okay, so the tree surgeon wasn't like a doctorate. Thing, no, indeed. no, oh, okay, I don't gotcha. think so. You would assume you'd have to go to like a, um, a pre-med tree surgeon school after eight years of college, but I guess not for that type of surgeon. Yeah, sounds more like a two-weekend kind of training <laughs> deal, and then you just kind of start. You just got to go to ITT Tech for a few weeks, and then and then you're good to go. Now, a little OJT. Now, uh, Debbie... Uh, and Arn, they remained together all the way, you know, all the way up until Debbie passed away, which was in 2019. So very recently, actually. Um, yeah. Now, let's go with the Warrens here. 
Lorraine Warren, after this event, I think it was in 1983, she actually went on to write a book titled The Devil in Connecticut, which was her retelling all the events about David and Arne and all of that. So basically, within two years of this whole thing happening, she got that book out. So... But what's interesting, an interesting turn of events here is that in 2016, they, whoever the publisher is, re-released the book, The Devil in Connecticut. Well, that caught the eyes of another one of Debbie's siblings, Carl Glatzel. Okay, so he spoke out. He was a little kid when the book came out. Now he's an adult. He actually took the time to read the book, and he was not very happy about how his family was portrayed. More specifically, how David was portrayed. According to Carl, David's mental issues actually started in 1979, a whole year before all of that went on. He claims that David struggled with hallucinations and delusions, which only continued to get worse when the whole demon possession and and all of that kind of went on. So he was... It's- go ahead. I was going to say, it's funny how treating it with Jesus doesn't seem to help anything. <laughs> no, not particularly. But so Carl is, as far as we know, is actively attempting to sue the the Warrens for whatever. Um, I forgot what they call it. Uh, when you speak bad about somebody, what do they call that? Oh, defamatory. Yes, yes. Because he, he says his brother doesn't deserve that because his brother was struggling with mental issues according to Carl Debbie claims that Carl's just trying to make money which I think is a whole other bag of or can of worms there now what we do have confirmed and this has been confirmed the Warrens had promised the family that they could become millionaires with a story but they only the Warrens actually only gave the Glatzels $2,000 so basically Glatzels, was it a deal where they sold the story to the Warrens for two thousand and then we, inspected royalties? We we or don't did the know. Glatzels just throw them two grand. We don't know, but okay. what we do know is they gave them two thousand dollars. I don't know what for. I would assume for the story, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would assume it's an initial thing just for you know because you can buy someone's story and then publish it, uh, sort of you know sort of deal it actually does fuck people over when they option that shit out for movies and the person whose story it is is like whoa 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 i didn't say anything about a movie i didn't say anything about this and it's like well no i bought the story from you so now i own it now it's my story yeah i will i will say like suing for suing someone for slander off of like if you win if you say you won i wonder if they would make all of them like get all the money that the warrens had made in that situation because technically they own the story well i both of the warrens are dead at this point so i don't think anybody's getting anything okay yeah um the thing is is i wish david was anywhere anywhere to be found obviously he probably doesn't want to be harassed or anything because apparently according to carl when the story came out all this shit happened Carl and the other siblings, especially David, were treated differently by every person in the in the little town, which is happens when you live in a small town, you know, a smaller town. 
oh yeah, live in a small town, anything happens, and yeah, everyone's gonna treat you like shit. Just yeah. It's uh that's with anything too though. You know, a uh something something bad happens, you know, parents lose their job and all of a sudden now you're the poor kids. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Even though really your situation's only changed a little bit. Oh yeah, your dad got laid off. You must be the poor kids now. You know. So, okay, here's what I think's interesting about the story. Now, David, as far as we know, after the murder and everything, the paranormal stuff ha- stopped. At least we don't hear a single shred of anything after that. After Arn kills this guy, all of that possession stuff is gone. But what's interesting is the possession stuff with David is officially on tape of starting before Arn murdered that guy. So either it's a weird string of coincidences or Arn used that as an excuse or I don't I guess you can. You, it is. It, I think you can get under a religious, what do they call it, a religious psychosis, I guess. But I, oh, yeah. I don't know if that happened in this case. What are, What are your feelings about David and Arn? I mean, it sounds like just a a fucking drunken squabble that went a little too far. Kind of the situation where you know, get his hands on Debbie and Arn obviously didn't fucking like that. I think, oh, obviously, I'm going with the, um, it was just the three of them, sort okay. of, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say that, you know, he's really, it's kind of, it happens all the time. You know, well, not all the time, but, you know, with, with true crime. Happens a lot with true crime. It's just this kind of, you know, you get all of this anger all at once, and then a nice guy like Arn just fucking pops. Snaps. And stabs them yeah. five times. Before he even knows what's going on, and then all of a sudden realizes what he's done, runs out of the house, throws down the knife, and tries to hide under a bridge. Because he doesn't know what the fuck to do. He probably didn't even know that side of him existed until no. it fucking happened. Well, like, so. here'd be my guess. If he had this much pent-up rage and everything, right, and he's trying to be a nice mm. guy, anger, the, the drunkenness lets it out of him, he could have blacked out. I don't think that's that uncommon if you're in that much of an emotional state to just black out, you know? Possible. Yeah. It's, so it's true too. I mean, I always imagine people are lying. Yeah. And yeah. kind of like when your ass is on the line, I always go with, they're probably lying. You know, you got a Venn diagram that shit with everyone's account. Kind of, kind of deal to find the truth. But you know, whatever you're going to hear out of the murderer's mouth, before they finally break down and tell you the, you know, the whole story. That's the, you know, even that might have been manipulated by the fucking investigators. So the detectives. What I mean, to Arn's credit, as far as we know, never um, offended or did any crime ever again. So, um, you know, most people's first crimes like a speeding ticket or something. This guy's was uh, first degree manslaughter, but. Yeah, I I don't know. I yeah, I I guess I think it was probably if I had to guess, a wild guess here, there must have been a lot of shit built up between Alan and Arn, like stuff Alan had slowly maybe harassed Debbie or whatever. You know, I don't want to victim blame here, but I have a feeling there's something that we don't know happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, and if there. They were, you said that they all three, or Debbie and Arn, were working there together, right? No, 
Or was it the ladies were the, the dog groomers? Yeah, the ladies were the dog okay. groomers, but mostly Debbie was the main dog groomer. Okay, so every time Debbie would come home and any time that the Alan had done anything bad, if she told Arn, it was just like kind of like building and building, you're thinking? Yeah, like let's say okay. let's say Alan was, you know, your quintessential old school drunk, right? Drunk all the time, trying to make moves or passes at Debbie. It wouldn't be, I, I feel like sexual harassment was a lot more accepted in the 80s. Uh, so, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Was, yeah. So maybe Definitely. I could I could totally see something like that. Like he's touching her inappropriately or something like that. Yeah, all of the like 70 year olds were in their 30s during the 80s. So imagine <laughs> yeah. how they are now. And now they're trying to hold that shit back because they're still, they're worried about getting fucking like canceled and, you know, charged sued basically now back then they didn't have to worry about any of that shit no no so okay what how about david what do you think with him you think he just probably had some sort of burgeoning mental illness or something yeah i think it just kind of you know i i don't think that the supposed exorcism and the stabbing were really like as related as the warrens put it out to be i do think you know obviously Religion was a huge part of all of their lives. Also, David having this mental illness was a huge part of their lives. You know, maybe that caused him some extra stress. Perhaps without all of the, you know, David being mentally ill, perhaps without all of that and trying to take care of that, maybe he wouldn't have gotten so angry he stabbed the guy. But, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened had, you know, none of that been going on. But definitely, I do think that it's just, you know, two dudes got in an argument drunk had a knife stabbed him yeah you know yeah all old times ever since fucking you know cavemen had fucking arguments and one just hit the other one with a rock right you know? <laughs> I same just, shit the, the same di- shit's been going on thirty thousand years yeah it's humans yeah i think with david his story reminds me a lot of the annalise michelle story uh do you remember that the German girl. Not really. We covered it on Bubble, but the German girl was said to be possessed by like seven different demons or eight or something. Oh yes, yep. She had like the I creepy, remember. the creepy growling noises and and all of that. She would contort in bed and yeah, yeah do all yeah. this weird stuff. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that's the story between that and David kind of are similar to me. But anyway, uh, if anybody wants to give us. Their conclusion to the story, uh, where can they contact us, Phil? You can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, it's great hearing from everybody. Love all the messages. You know, you guys give out story ideas. You guys always have opinions about, like, the episodes we're doing. It's awesome. Thank you for that. Cody and I also have our Instagram account that we share. The one for the show is Subliminal Deception Podcast. Uh, love also when you guys get a hold of us on there. Uh, you know, all of the likes, all the shares. It's just, it's awesome. Thank you for all for that. Cody and I have our own Instagram accounts, minus SDPodPhil. Cody, you have one? Yeah, you can follow me at Cody'sAbub. Uh, give me a follow, talk to me, do whatever you want. Um, last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave a show a five-star review. Doesn't really matter what you say, just five stars type. I love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It doesn't matter. If you're <laughs> if you're a Spotify user, 
It's even easier. You just have to hit the five stars, hit submit. You don't have to type a goddamn thing. Your name isn't on there, nothing. You're incognito, and we greatly appreciate everyone who's taken the time to do that. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this kind of a famous story and uh, maybe had a little different viewpoint on it. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.